yeah, there's certain there's certain things where you can do nothing about the chaos, and others where oh my goodness, what's uh, this? Here he is. It's Urban oh. Rory Smith. That's it. I've been for a dog walk, so I'm wearing my cool beans. You look like you're about to lay down some tracks <laughs> in your at in your attic recording studio. But more importantly, in my office, as you can see. Yes. Internet good. What has happened? This has happened. Oh, <laughs> a precarious looking cable. No, yes. not the cable. Sorry, it has happened. It is, mess. It is a proper mess in here. No, this is a BT whole home disc. I have revolutionised our internet uh, situation. It's um, it's a brave new world. Listeners will be very uh, interested to know what your upload and download speeds currently are. Do you want to? Uh, well, well, Hugh, let me tell you. Um, hang on. Uh, do, 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 do. So it's still it's still annoying because it's much quicker downstairs. It's a download is sixty. Oh, MBPS. that's excellent. Oh, that is amazing. And well, it's two hundred downstairs, and upload is or maybe a hundred downstairs. Upload is sixteen. My internet connection is very fast. Your internet connection should be able to handle multiple devices streaming HD videos, video conferencing, and gaming at the same time. I'm doing all of those things at the moment. What's yours, Steve? Mine's mine was hovering just over twenty. Oh, what download? On. Yeah. Oh, that's horrible. I, I, although I I have got two children on Zoom classes downstairs, and uh, and Katie is probably on a Zoom meeting, so that might have something to do about it. Uh, At the moment, I can't even connect to a broadband speed checker, <laughs> so that's not a great sign, is right, it? Right. Okay, Stephen. Close everything else down. I'm currently sixty-five and a half and seventeen and a half, so uh, I'm feeling like I'm competing, but nothing like Rory's excellent two hundred downstairs. I've not been never been happier. This has transformed my life. Do you have some local urchin furiously peddling away <laughs> on some kind of device that, uh, that, that drives the internet? We do know that cycling is popular in Ilkley. <laughs> it is extremely popular in Ilkley. Now, I'm not a technological expert, as you may know, but I would have thought that, you know how everyone's at home at the moment and everyone's on the internet, people, are, kids are doing classes and people are doing Zoom conferences and all that stuff. And people who can't work from home presumably are on the internet streaming stuff or whatever, or just generally trying to get through the day. It, the internet runs through the same wires, doesn't it? We all use the same internet wires. That's how it works. So do those wires get clogged? Well, like, yes. like ar arteries get clogged with cholesterol. After you've had similar. a deep fried yeah, Mars bar, yeah. <laughs> is there like an, an internet equivalent of the Fatberg? <laughs> which is just lots of like Unilad content. Just blocking everything up. No, they, they, they've turned it, they've effectively turned, like your dad switches the internet on and off. People have turned the internet down. <laughs> Don't think my dad knows how to turn the internet off. He turns <laughs> his computer off and is no longer on the internet. <laughs> is it they, they, they've turned it down so that this, it can be spread out more easily. So that Oh, is that right? People, I think so, yeah. I think that's how they do it. Does that mean there's like a big internet button somewhere that, that kind of someone can press? Dominic Raab, Michael Gove, someone who can kind of press... I think it's a like, fader. Yeah, like a fader, like a light, on a light switch. Inch it down, like on the very, very old-fashioned uh, amplifiers that people used to have in the 1960s and 70s. It's like the beginning of Back to the Future, you know, when Marty McFly goes into Doc's office and he's plugging the guitar into that massive amp and switching everything up, and his last thing is to turn a ginormous knob up to 11. Well, I reckon somebody has currently turned that knob down on the internet. To like six. We're at a six. Internet six. That's where we are. This is why people tune in for the exceptionally uh, entertaining and content driven part of the early show 
we talk about ginormous knobs turned down to six. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, who, like Tom Brady, is at the very top of his game at the age of 43. And Rory Smith, who, on the other hand, has received exactly one less presidential pardon than fellow 38-year-old Lil Wayne. Um, Chinch is still unable to be with us, by the way. His wife, Nikki, has lost a loved one in recent days. We are sad to tell you. So uh, we are thinking of them and hope to have Chinch back soon. Uh, the food is food that you'd like to donate to other people. You may well have seen uh, uh, on our Twitter yesterday, uh, if you're listening on Wednesday, and indeed we spoke about it last week, um, that somebody from a local food bank got in touch in response to a Buffalo uh, suggestion that perhaps we would encourage listeners to donate food at a time when we, of course, are unable to eat together in a time where many people are uh, finding it difficult to find food at all. So if you'd like to go on our Twitter to find out the details of that, we'll also put the URL back on uh, the podcast details of this week. And if you have a local food bank or trust or uh, anywhere that you'd like us uh, to uh, promote and donate to, uh, then please let us know and we will include it at the beginning of the next few shows. So that is the food. The football is a Rory hat trick. Not sure whether another lockdown has given him clarity of mind or whether as a non-drinker, he's found himself addicted to the intoxicating nature of power instead. But our New York Times soccer correspondent has bagged a third successful subject suggestion in a row. And here now is an awesomely clunky segue because today we are wondering if we've given statistics too much power. Have we reached the stage where we're no longer capable of judging a player's performance without the numerical evidence? If there isn't a metric to measure them by, then do they have any value at all? That is to come. I should point out that I have suge suggested topics three weeks in a row that have been accepted, except that the number of other topics suggested by anybody else in those three weeks are zero. This is very much me, me running riot against Alison Becker. Do you know what I mean? This is not, <laughs> this is not, there's not been a challenge. I, it has been presented to me on a plate. You, so you're Phil Foden and we're both Alison Becker. I, I think, I think I'm effectively Raheem Sterling and you're both Alison Becker. Have, Which you, have you nodded in from a half inch it, out? It, yeah, my XG on the chances are is like 0.99. <laughs> Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast with any topic suggestions just to try and uh, at least stop this from happening uh, at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. That's our email address. Twitter, Facebook and YouTube all have presences of us on them. Uh, we have an email here from Craig O'Callaghan, who is contemporaneous with his content. Dear Richard Poole, Humphrey Goodman, Jack Mooney and Neville Parker. Rory will get the reference. Yes, I love the reference. And you know that Death in Paradise is my not my guilty pleasure. It's just the only thing that brings me pleasure in life. Debating far-fetched, never-going-to-happen hypothetical football scenarios, like, for example, a non-elite World Cup, is often the most entertaining way to kill time in the pub. Remember pubs, says Craig. So I've always greatly enjoyed when SPM takes a trip to another world and asks, what if? As I write, it is the week before the biggest sporting event of the year, allegedly. So I'd like to pose another hypothetical for you to chew over. Who wins a Premier League Super Bowl? This isn't just a case of which is the best team, as any NFL fan knows. Step one, split 32 clubs into two 16 teams conferences. Step two, split each 16-team conference into four four-team divisions based on geography, north, east, south and west. Step three, figure out the winner of each conference, who gets a bye week for the playoffs and who gets a wild card. Step four, decide the outcome of the playoffs, including seeding and home field advantage. And step five, 
realise that Manchester City will win this just like they win the actual Premier League, making the whole thought experiment completely unnecessary. And he says, for an added level of difficulty, map each of the football clubs onto an existing NFL franchise in order to figure out who plays in which division. After all, who are the Premier League equivalent of the New England Patriots? But I suspect that is a rabbit hole that is best avoided from Craig. Craig, I would suggest that as a rabbit hole, very much worth going down. However, none of us have the time currently. If anybody wants to try and do that, let us know, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. I mean, Man City would win it, which makes you think that for all that I quite like the idea of like a lead and then a playoff structure, I think that lends a degree of randomness and excitement and stuff. A home and away lead does more than any other structure identify who is the best team, which is surely the point of the whole, the whole escapade. Yeah, playing everybody at least once would seem as though that's a good way of determining who the best team is, which obviously doesn't happen in the Super Bowl, in, in, for the Super Bowl winners. And, and thankfully, UEFA have done this for us because they're turning the Champions League into effectively two, I think, like 10-team conferences or 16-team conferences, uh, which means that we will have an equally kind of not actually a proper competition competition in football very soon indeed. Very much something to look forward to. Next to Morris Cole, who's got in touch in response to last week's episode on managers' teams and players' teams, to the dude, his dudeness, El Duderino. And Jeffrey, I hope you're all well. Since I am not journeying to school at the moment in this latest lockdown, I have simulated my Wednesday commute in order to listen to the podcast. The commute is necessary, he says, for optimum concentration. I discovered a cycle route which takes me from my house all the way into London, along the South Bank, past the National Theatre in London Eye, over Westminster Bridge, around Buckingham Palace and up to Hyde Park. And so, after a morning of online school, I have been cycling the 15 kilometres, which perfectly fills an SPM-shaped hole in my routine. I thoroughly enjoyed last week's episode on managers or players teams in particular the point about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer occupying more of a back seat in terms of Manchester United narrative because of the dominating narratives of Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba it got me thinking if OGS isn't United's main man does that mean he will last longer than perhaps he should and might he be given more time than other better managers like Louis van Gaal who didn't really get a chance at United despite being vastly more experienced and successful if OGS isn't lambasted with the blame for crises at United surely sacking him wouldn't be the most obvious solution to them from Maurice Cole. That's a really great point, isn't it? The idea that by flying under the radar a little bit, a manager earns himself longevity. Is he, a, is he actually a tactical genius, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Well, that, that's the second piece of evidence that would support that theory in recent days. So the other one I thought that I thought was really interesting was Solskjaer coming out and saying, while United were second five points off Man City, that, that they weren't title contenders. If Solskjaer had come out and said, yeah, we're in the title race, we're in the title hunt, and then they finished 14 points behind Manchester City, as I think they probably will, then that would look an awful lot like failure. Whereas if Solskjaer comes out and says, yeah, we're not in the title race at all, they finished second 14, 14 points behind Man City, that suddenly looks like success. That's quite clever. I think Solskjaer's maybe smarter at playing those games than we realise. So I wonder if maybe he is happy to, to make the team look like it's reliant on players rather than manager under promise and over deliver. Finally, we've had a lot of emails into us here at SPM from people over the years called John Wood. We've anointed one a Buffalo, so he's the Buffalo John Wood, while the other John Wood is from Huntington Beach in California. Now, we've not always had room for their regular missives, but we continue to gratefully receive them. And this past week was the first that both John Woods got in touch. Now, that is enough of a significant event to include them in the show. So first, Buffalo John Wood has had this to say. Hello, all. Podcast equals great. Now we've got the formalities out of the way. I wanted to come back on your interesting discussion around football behind closed doors from SPM 214. 
before. For me, I have found that football behind closed doors during lockdown has had a much greater impact on my mood than it ever has done before. I have found that when Liverpool, he's a Liverpool fan, I have found that when Liverpool lose or perform badly, which has been quite often recently, a feeling of disappointment lingers far longer than it ever has before due to the fact that there is so little else going on in my life at the moment other than work. I was never one of those people whose weekend is ruined by a bad result. I was usually okay after an hour or so. Now, however, I feel like I need the next match to come along quickly in order to dispel this feeling of melancholy. When it does, if Liverpool win, the feeling of joy is far more fleeting than it has been previously, as the next match is only inevitably three days away and I start to dread what horrors await. If Liverpool lose, it compounds the misery of the previous loss. I am fully aware this feeling is completely irrational, especially given the last three seasons, but when there is so little else in life to get excited about and to enjoy, holidays, time with friends, nights out with family, etc., I can't help but let it get to me. Also, being crap at fantasy football offers little respite. I'm not sure if this is just me or if others found this sense of dismay amplified due to the nature of lockdown, but I wanted to offer a different perspective to that given in episode 214, which is mainly about the impact on our enjoyment of the product itself. Keep up the good work. That's from John. Uh, P.S. I wanted to address Hugh's revisionist history in episode 212 of Scar and Mufasa in The Lion King. Scar does not simply not help Mufasa when given the opportunity to do so. He sets up the stampede and the trap for Simba and then digs his claws into Mufasa's paws to send him plunging to his death. So unless Hugh is Scar's defense attorney and is aiming for manslaughter instead of murder, I would call that very much premeditated. <laughs> I stand corrected, John. As, as much of a Disney fan as I am, I haven't watched it that closely since I was about uh, uh, 12. So um, so that's from John, an interesting, uh, interesting note about the kind of the emotional context of behind closed doors football from afar. There's a great piece by Johnny Liu in The Guardian on the day that we are recording that's worth reading about about the problem of abuse within football specifically racist abuse but he kind of broadens it out to look at uh, football's abuse culture more generally which is something we've talked about on the pot and he makes the point that it feels a little bit like over the last year that it's become more concentrated online because fans aren't in stadiums so there's not that vent and that's not to say i think that that every game would have kind of a chorus of racist abuse at players it was happening more regularly before before lockdown and the hiatus but it, they were still kind of isolated events. They weren't, it, I think, something like 10% of the games, which is obviously 10% too many, but but it's not this constant thing where online, after every game, there is there seems to be racist abuse directed at one player or another. And I suspect, to be honest, it will be after every game if you look hard enough. That if you, there might not be, as there were with, say, the Tuanzebi incidents, that kind of groundswell of look at, look at what is happening. But I suspect a player is racially abused after every game, certainly in the Premier League, probably lower down. But also it feels the same point as John makes that it feels like fans have a lot of kind of and fans are just people effectively have a lot of energy that needs to be directed somewhere, a lot of angry energy that, that has to go somewhere. And it, that tends to sort of vent online. And I think that's two sides of the same coin that there's a lot of people out there who are finding that there is nothing in their lives other than other than football. And the teams that lose in football tend to get quite angry. The fact the fans tend to get quite angry and football has a severe problem that whenever anything happens that people don't like that manifests in some form of abuse and that can be racist it can be sexist it can just be general abuse towards the players or the club or whoever or another club or another set of players or whatever or Mike Dean getting getting death threats and I think it's probably right that in the last 10 months 11 months that has become more and more pronounced because people feel as though there is there is so little else to distract you that the results do seem to matter more now. So that was one John Wood to the other John Wood, who also has a thoughtful contribution entitled simply, thank you. Uh, now that would be kind enough. However, 
there is more. Dear boys to left back, as I've said before, boys with a Z, obviously two with a, the Roman numerals. As I've said before, I enjoy walking and listening to your podcast here in Huntington Beach, which is a massive brag. I was listening on the 2nd of January and probably laughing at something funny that Chinch said, or maybe a Rory diatribe when I tripped and fell cracking my sternum and breaking three ribs. We are not liable for that. And it's also less of a brag, isn't it? Uh, perfect time, he says, while recouping perhaps to listen to old shows, right? Wrong. A few days later, one of my best friends passed away from cancer and I couldn't go to his funeral due to COVID restrictions. Then my mother's caregiver came down with COVID and gave it to my 95-year-old mum. Unbelievably, my mum never had any symptoms beside loss of taste and smell, and she has now been symptom-free for two weeks and no longer considered contagious. And I hope and pray over it. He says he tested negative. So why am I thanking you? The day before my mum made it to 14 days of being asymptomatic and therefore out of danger, I finally turned on your podcast. It was still episode 209 where I had stopped halfway through when I had fallen. I immediately heard the smooth voice of LL Cool Steve Ladies love cool Steve. <laughs> then Chinch's butter side up toast analogy. Rory being Cato Claris atque ridiculam, which is immediately translated in his head from Latin to English and comes out as. Trying to service an attack helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Latin really is a modern language. Yeah. And Hugh somehow herding all of you cool cats. I felt the tension in my shoulders instantly dissipate. I smiled and laughed. For the first time in nearly a month, I was able to get out of my head, not think of my losses or my worries about my mother. And I almost forgot the pain I feel from my broken ribs. I can't thank you enough and tell you how much I love the pod. You are like old friends. I can hear you when you turn on your microwaves in the background or LL Cool Stephen eating or the chuckles and smirks that make me feel like I am there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is sincerely from John Wood in Huntington Beach, uh, California. At the risk of complicating things immeasurably, perhaps we should make the other John Wood a buffalo too. So we have Buffalo John Wood and also buffalo john wood and the only difference apart from their geographical location is the fact that one of the johns has an h in their first name and one of them doesn't that doesn't work in the audio form unfortunately Wait, is the huntington beach one the buffalo no he's the as yet to be described buffalo. well that's outrageous he he's a, a loyal and um engaged listener he should be a buffalo i advocate for his his buffalo status advocato startum <laughs> buffalamque that sounds like you were ordering something on toast in a hip deli <laughs> Really, really. I'm reading a book actually about um about the history of cities and it's all about Rome and Greece at the moment. I'm only 70 pages in. The city uh, of Greece. No, the city was about, about the, the 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 Greek polis, the city states, um, which makes sense to me as a as a trained classicist. Uh, the um and it does make me think I actually really like the ancient world. I should probably try and remember how to read Latin. That that's quite embarrassing. That I have no idea what Cato Claris Aqua Ridiculum means. Uh, correspondence of any kind, including clarifications on Latin phrases to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, many of you will be familiar with the Peter Parker principle. Uh, it describes back to non-classical literature. It describes a phrase that was uh, definitely, definitely first coined in a Spider-Man comic and has absolutely no roots in 18th century French Revolution history because it appears that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is to the movies what 1992 is to football. Nothing happened before it. That phrase is... With great power comes great responsibility. And as tempting as it is to consider at length the significant moral burden that might put on a young Toby Maguire, today we are applying it to football statistics, which on the whole have never swung from building to building or indeed upside down kissed Kirsten Dunst. They have, however, become so ubiquitous that the power is evident. But are statistics being used 
responsibly. Can a player's performance be judged by any metric that isn't a number in a column in a graph? Can we determine that someone has played well without proving it using data? And if there is indeed no evidence, can we still convince others that there is value in that player's display? So statistics have all the power, but do they need to be used more responsibly? It's interesting because it feels like this could be a, a sort of data episode and we'd all be on board with that. We like data. We're, we're modern forward thinking. But I actually wonder whether there are other things at play, more left field influences that have fed into this idea that everything that is worth, that everything that is valuable on a football pitch must by definition be measurable, which is the basic problem that if you, if you think about kind of all those who's the goat conversations, it comes down to goals and assists and in, in num- numbers of games. If you think about the way that we assess players and teams' performances, it's it's the XG or it's the the kind of the goal creating actions increasingly. But I wonder whether the rise of analytics within football is only part of that. And actually, the two things that are much more relevant to the, to the feeling that I have, which is that football now is is seen as a, as an industry designed with an output in mind rather than an art form are, are kind of the rise of social media as the forum on which we discuss football and everything else. And the fact that the, the natural tone of social media is an argument between people. It's not a conversation increasingly, which mean, and you know, what you need in an argument is supporting evidence to win your argument. So you look for numbers because they feel concrete and certain and definitive. But the other thing that I think is really important is fantasy football which is defined by the number of points that a player's individual performance can get you. You will not get any points for an artistically played pass. You will get points for an assist, for a goal, for a clean sheet. And that is what I think has driven a lot of this, this, this sort of trend now to, to gauge players' worth only by the measurable aspects of their performance. It ties in with what we've talked about in the past with computer games as well, FIFA rankings ratings football manager this perception that how a player performs in the virtual world is somehow equivalent to how they do or don't perform in in the real world and you see you end up getting stuff like i feel like it's once a week that a premier league midfielder a jobbing premier league midfielder surpasses paul skull's premier league assists tally and is therefore declared by supporters of that club to be a better midfielder than Paul Scholes. The fact that he's got 11 Premier League titles, three FA Cups, two Champions League winners' medals, utterly irrelevant, apparently, in that conversation. It's, well, weight of assists. Sheer weight of having played the pass before a goal is scored, however brilliant or not that pass may have been, all the value is suddenly placed on that and not what the achievement either for that individual player or the team that he is collectively part of, that that seems to be secondary. And it's interesting because if, if you're talking about somebody like Paul Scholes, who, of course, in his latter years was an absolutely outstanding, what we now call pivots or holding midfielder. And Rory, you, you have been having a conversation which has prompted some of these thoughts about Tiago, who is also in that position. If you consider how important that position is to so many managers who we revere and in terms of people like Pep Guardiola, who, who played that position as well, that there is a sense, isn't it, that that is the most indefinable 
position in terms of statistics. And yet so many people who we, yeah, who we respect think it is the most important position on the pitch. So is that the very kind of zenith of this conversation? I think a lot of the best examples of what we're talking about would fall into that position. Obviously, strikers have always been judged by goals. That It's probably not right. And in fact, I want, I'm planning on writing a piece about Tim Werner this week that kind of has to confront that idea that sometimes just looking at the number of goals they're scoring isn't necessarily the only gauge of a striker's contribution. It is probably the most important because ultimately goals win football matches. Defences, rather than defenders, can probably be judged pretty fairly by the number of goals they conceded. You know, defence that's conceding, shipping a load of goals every week, probably not playing that well. Um, and and that's fine. Sport Football, to an extent, is a sport of numbers. It's a, it's a, it's a game in which the outcome is measured and that's the point of the game. That's fine. I'm not disputing that we should be handing out points for artistic impression. But I think in, in midfield in particular, it's very easy to see a debate about the quality of a midfielder skewed by how many sort of define, easily definable things did they do. And Tiago is a good example of it because there is a real kind of artistry to the way Tiago plays the game. You can, you can think, I should, should point this out at this point, you can think that he isn't well suited to, to this manifesto, this, this iteration of Liverpool, but he is a he is a wonderful footballer to watch. I, I, the, I was at the Merseyside derby in October, the game that Van Dijk got injured, and it's the first time that I'd seen Thiago play for Liverpool. Uh, I'd seen him play for Bayern live, I think, and I may even have seen him play for Barcelona live. Uh, but it was the first time I'd seen him for a couple of years, probably since Bayern played at Anfield in the in the Champions League. And just to watch him is is genuinely wonderful as a as someone who who loves football to watch a player with that much mastery of the ball, that much sort of intelligence about space, that, that very clear bird's eye view that, that great midfielders talk about, who knew where everything was all of the time and who has those little flourishes. You know, Thiago will play a no-look pass if he can. He wants to do that. And I think that as, as a football fan, it's hard not to watch Thiago if he, once you take you know, colours, the colour of the shirt he's, he's wearing out of it. It's hard not to watch him and enjoy it because he is he is extremely good at football in the same way as watching Xavi was always a pleasure. Because even if you're not, I'm not, I'm not a Barcelona fan, but to watch Xavi and Iniesta was was just breathtaking at times. And it was the, it was football transformed into an art. But I think all of those players, Xavi, Iniesta, Thiago, Busquets to an extent, uh, Paul Scholes, even Pirlo, who didn't score that many goals or create that many goals, his, his assistant goal figures were not enormous. Those are the players that bring us great pleasure. Guardiola is a great example of it as well. But in this era where if you're not producing assists or goals regularly, you are dismissed as your output is not enough and therefore you are not a good midfielder. And I think that that takes something away from what the game is about, to, to be perfectly honest. It strips it down to its, its kind of bare bones essentials, which is doing it a disservice. And it's interesting, actually, that there's now talk, people talk a little bit more about pre-assists. And I wonder if that's a way of trying to appreciate the greatness of those players in a way that works in a numerically data-driven discourse. I think that might be, and things like pass completion or the number of passes played don't quite grasp it just because the, the response to that is always, well, what did those passes do? Were they sideways? <laughs> Were they sideways? And there's this little dismiss, this, dismiss, this, this dismissal of sideways passes, even though quite often you kind of need the sideways pass to create the opportunity for the assist. That's kind of how football works. But we, we tend to dismiss sideways passes as pointless. 
and the players who play them, who are marshalling space, who are running the game as being ineffective. And yeah, that, that would apply to, to all of those players that we've mentioned so far. Scrolls is a brilliant example of it, that Scrolls' figures weren't actually that brilliant quite often, but Strolls himself was brilliant. Yeah, his pre-assist numbers would be astronomical, I would imagine. We, we talked a little bit, I can't remember whether it was last week or the week before, in terms of punditry, how it's difficult to incorporate every facet now of football analysis into a, a soundbite. And that's true of this conversation as well, isn't it? It's, it's hard. All what, You have to factor in all the elements of how you view, analyse and appreciate a player's expertise before making a judgment. It can't just be, they look, oh, they look good. They're elegant. I like the way they play the game because they need to be effective as well. And sometimes the numbers can help you reach a conclusion as to whether or not they are but they need to be part of the, the greater whole as well. And to come back to Manchester United and another midfielder, Michael Carrick, United had plateaued the season before he arrived or in a couple of seasons before he arrived. They won four of the next five Premier League titles after his signing. Now he's very much a sideways passing midfielder. Michael Carrick's numbers are not going to make him look like a, a world beater, but he came to a, a big club, made the step up, and his arrival transformed them back into to winners again after a couple of seasons of, of not achieving their goals. And just to finish on the point and to, to offer some support to Rory on Thiago, that maybe the way of measuring him is not by whether or not he's had an impact on Liverpool, but how difficult Bayern have found to replace him because they have been sluggish by their, their high standards this season without him. They, they've missed his ability to make things happen, to dictate the tempo of a game. Yes, they're seven points clear in the Bundesliga again. Yes, they are into the the last 16 of the Champions League and, and they're a good bet to win that competition once more. But they've had to innovate and do so quite quickly because in the early weeks of the season, his absence was quite noticeable. It's interesting because you could probably... Play, players like Thiago and Paul Scholes, the only, the only measurable statistic that you could apply to their careers of those that were available during the careers was probably yellow cards. Cause one thing that does uh, set them apart is their terrible ability to tackle. Um, but also you, you, you find because there, there is that element, isn't there about, you can tell that they are influential, but you are not sure about how to best represent that numerically. If we are in a world where statistics are a, a force for good in that they disseminate some of those intangible elements of the game widely, which is, which is of value, but also, in the, and it's something that Rory mentioned on the text when you were suggesting this about the, the the Americanization of soccer into the fact that we are more interested in statistics now because we see it in American sports and, and how they are governed by statistics to a, a much larger extent than, than we have become used to. But, the, but there is a sense also in American sports and it's, and it's not only in terms of the data analysis, but also in terms of t- team building that sometimes more modern thoughtful statistics have been retroactively applied to try and get those intangibles more tangible. There are statistics in NFL where you thought, right, okay, just, just saying how many, how many points a defense has has, um, allowed over the course of the season isn't necessarily a best reflection of that. So we're going to change it to DVOA, you know, which is a much more weighted statistic, which is the kind of newfangled, 
complicated statistic that a lot of people will roll their eyes about, but actually might be considered by those who analyze the game as being the best way of finding a figure that represents uh, a defense's uh, efficiency. Is DVOA so, the people who issue the driving licenses? That's it. Yeah, it's just in America. Not, not over here. So you've got you've got those kind of statistics that have kind of you've reversed engineered. You've you've found an efficiency, and then you've found a way to try and describe that. Football hasn't got to that stage yet and even though there is or there might be a certain reticence to apply more and more statistics to football is actually america a good example of how you use those statistics and try and find not just the statistics that we have been using now but try and add something which is slightly more or slightly better a slightly better fit to those kind of things that we found difficult to describe using evidence and data so far yeah i think we, we have to remember that to an extent that that the analytics in football are still maybe not in their kind of nascent period, but they're still relatively young. And we're, you know, we're, we're, we're moving very slowly away from, from the really basic use of statistics, which, you know, things like how far did the team run? And it's now you on TV particularly. And TV is, I think, at least a step, if not a couple behind what the clubs are doing. But on TV, you'll see high intensity sprint statistics and, and that there is an awareness that, just saying, well, this team has covered 11 kilometers and this team has covered 10 isn't particularly meaningful. Partly because generally the team that is losing will run more. The team that has less of the ball will run more. It's a slightly counterintuitive way of trying to understand the game. It's essentially meaningless. We did the radio the other day and, uh, and Michael Richards made the point that at Villa, Steve Bruce was, was very keen on the who ran the most statistic. And that was, I think, Mike is saying, look, Steve, you know, Steve Bruce is, is thorough. That's, that's an incredibly basic reading of any kind of statistical output that, you know, you need to run more than the opposition is not a sophisticated understanding of how numbers work. Johan Cruyff would tell you that actually running is not the chief, chief purpose of a footballer. The, the only thing that's meant to move as much as possible is the ball. Yes. I think that's the general understanding. The equally past completion, I think we, we, now, we, know, we now know to kind of greet past completion statistics with a degree of scepticism because they don't tell you a huge amount. And I wonder if, if in the next couple of years, we might start to see things like final third entries become the default kind of passing statistic. But and, and Steve, Steven, Steven is shaking his well, head. Well, he's, he's, he's reacted. And this is, this is just as a, as a side issue, but also part of the greater whole is that it, it's the communication issues. And, and I know you tweeted, uh, Rory, after the, um, the Athletic posted something about Martin Odegaard's um, particular analytical abilities or, or, or abilities that have been hi highlighted by the analytics. And it's the communication issue. Final third entries, that is not the best way of describing something which you hope you hope to be taken on by a, a wider part of the footballing society. But the thing is that so much of this stuff, I know what you mean, but so much of this stuff is actually... So yeah, there was an, there's an element, it was a bit harsh probably to tweet about the, what the Athletics said. There were a couple that were very jargony basically. And it, it did feel as though I think analytics generally, particularly on social media, has a real problem between balancing out, wanting to be accepted and needing to be accepted to some extent, because this is, this is how clubs and managers and coaches see the game. This is, this is stuff that they are doing and that they believe in. And therefore, if you want to understand what they're doing, you probably need to have some sort of grasp of, of what these things are. But also there is an element particularly on the, the kind of social media analytics community of wanting to show how clever they are and that to, to make clear that there is an in-group and an out-group, which is what jargon is designed to do, that, and the in-group understands it and the out-group doesn't. And I think that is something that analytics in general probably has to confront at some point, that you need, it needs to be understand, understandable, easily understandable. And also they maybe need to point out 
and this is a conversation I've had a lot with Chris Sutton, that a lot of this stuff isn't new. It's just a way of, of quantifying it that makes it more accessible and to an extent more meaningful. So that was, that was my point about how America yeah. have done it. They've, they've realized that there's a problem. They realized that, 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 that the way that they've described them in terms of how it's traditionally been done is not, not only it's not the best use of it, but also it's old fashioned. So let's find a way of describing something which has heretofore been intangible by giving it a tangible value. And that, that reverse engineering is actually, even though it's more statistics rather than less statistics is, is might, might be of value. It's about combining everything because football is more organic in in the way it is played compared to a lot of the sports in which this influence of statistics and analytics seems to be coming from. And bearing in mind, it, it, we've got cricket. We don't need American sports to influence this idea of, of statistics becoming a big part of of the game, the analysis of it, the way we view it, because we've had that in cricket for decades uh, last, as we are recording last night, I did the Club World Cup semi-final between uh, Bayern and Al Ali, the, the the Egyptian side with Stephen Warnock, and there was something interesting in the first half in that game, which which I noticed, which was bearing in mind Bayern had only been in Qatar for sort of forty eight hours. There was suggestion that quite a few of the players had been keen to stay up and watch the Super Bowl the night before, and there was a, a, a one wondering as to how intense Bayern might be in a game that they were expected to win fairly comfortably anyway. Turned out that the complete reverse happened, that they were very intense. They played very high tempo and the game was played the first half almost exclusively in Al-Ali's half. Now, statistically, you would look at that and it would be action areas. If you were, if you were getting graphics, it would be action areas, heat maps, hot spots and all that business. And, and when I brought this up with Stephen Warnock, he actually pointed out and get, gave it the former players' point of view, that more organic analysis, that actually what Bayern were doing is by being intense, by not doing what you might have accept, expected, that when the ball was cleared to allow themselves to retreat, to, to build from the back again, that by only using half the pitch, they were actually saving energy. So even though it looked as though this was crazy intensive football, and that would be backed up statistically by the action areas on the pitch in the direction of travel of the ball, that what Bayern were doing was conserving energy by not allowing the, the game to slow down. So they had to build up again. By, my, by maintaining their rhythm, they were making life easier for themselves. And, that's, and I, th I felt like that was a, a perfect example of the way that you have to bring all of the aspects together. You can't just rely on what you see with your eyes and you can't just rely on the statistics. The statistics. You have to combine the two to reach your conclusion. I, I remember speaking to Ralph Rangnick just before Christmas, which is a terrible name drop and I apologise, um, who said that, the, that there's a misunderstanding about the pressing game, that, that it's more, the belief is that if you press, it is more physically demanding than if you sit back. His view is that it's not a case of being more or less physically demanding. It's a case of being different, of different physical demands. That a pressing game demands that you make a lot of short sprints, but it means that you have to make far fewer long, high-intensity runs. So he thinks that it saves you energy to press intensively, but it makes you more sustainable over the course of the season, which feels instinctively wrong to me but it shows that, that maybe neither of those statistics, distance run and number of high-intensity high sprints carried out or distance covered at, at, in high-intensity, 
are fully neither of them are conclusive and i think that's that's really important there is no there's no kind of answer to this which is a problem when you sort of broaden it out to to fans distrusting who is good and who is bad or who's better and who's worse and using numbers to support their case because it depends which numbers you're using and it depends what type of thing that player is meant to do but also that you, it can be the case that some of these statistics don't work in quite the, the way you think they do or we think they do or that even they, they it naturally seems that they ought to and Steve's right it, it would look you'd think if Bayern were tired they should sit back and and try and play low intensity kind of conserve energy all that stuff but maybe the, the best way to conserve energy is to play really high intensity football, partly because it reduces the size of the pitch, partly because it finishes the game earlier. Human history is littered with examples of uh, evidence being used to, to, to the furtherment or gain of one group of people over another, uh, until recently when evidence apparently is of no value whatsoever. Um, but there is the sense, isn't there, that if you, if you have, that, that if, if the power is with these statistics and you have more of them now than you ever did, and you have an easier way of being able to disseminate those statistics via social media, via, you know, via, d- during a game, uh, as Stephen was mentioning. Where does this responsibility lie then? Because Rory, you mentioned that, that, that TV is a little bit behind in terms of how much it wants to put on screen. And then, therefore, they are not necessarily choosing the right things to put on screen. We had a whole debate about XG on a previous podcast about how uh, that's being used and whether it should be used as much or maybe even more. But, but Stephen, from a commentator's point of view, and I know you've just said that you, you wanted to have a greater kind of a, a macro view of everything using statistics as a part of that. But what, what would you want? Because a commentator's prep is basically to delve into stories, yes, but statistics primarily. So what, what would you want to see on that, on that screen or as part of your commentary to, to be able to best use statistics in a responsible way? And how much responsibility do you have? And does the television yeah. station that you're working for have? Well, Statistics have become a big part of football commentary over the last couple of decades, driven by the fact that that was something that John Motson brought into his commentary and he very much became the voice of football in this country. So I suppose it was only natural that the others would follow that lead. But it's reached a point now where there are so many resources available for any football fan to absorb statistical information before, during and after a game, that actually you wonder whether a commentator's responsibility to use that information or the way they use it has has changed as a consequence because it's no longer the the preserve of your unique research or the the resources you have available to you to find out or have access to that information. Anybody can have it. It, it, It's published by the organisations who you work for ahead of games. So it's, it's about making sure that you use that information in the right way, that you use it to embellish what you're seeing, that it isn't just dropped in casually during the course of the football commentary conversation, that, that when something happens visually within the game, that maybe you have some information to back up either why that has happened or to support why it is that that player is able to offer that kind of contribution to the match. Yet increasingly you see in coverage, and and I think we're really lucky in in England that sports coverage in this country is exceptional. And 
certainly other countries in Europe look with envy at, at the, the Premier League coverage and, and are constantly trying to innovate in their own ways. But you do see an awful lot from other leagues, just random statistics being dropped in at, at any point during the game, which I'm sure for some people really enhances the viewing experience. But from my point of view, I'd rather see it being used at a point in which, you know, so that you can say, well, the, the balance of the game has shifted. Right. Well, let's see the action areas from the last five minutes to see whether that's backed up statistically or this player in particular seems to be suddenly on the ball an awful lot more influencing the game a lot more. Right. Let's see his touch map from the last five minutes. I think that is the way that we can incorporate what we are seeing from the fluidity of the game with the statistical information rather than sort of having a the building blocks that we feel like we need to drop in occasionally. I just give you the one, and then the one example I mentioned in in the WhatsApp group about having this this conversation today is that in the Bundesliga, about ten minutes from the end, one of the things they drop in the top three fastest players of the game. The game could be on a complete knife edge, and the player who is the fastest in the game may have scored an own goal and been sent off. It, it feels like such an arbitrary irrelevant thing because you can see for yourself if a player is fast but what you then need to decide is whether their speed is having an impact them being quick within itself is not a decisive factor in the game but it could be but the, and the fact that the leads are, are trying to produce that content albeit slightly ham-fistedly is because they there is an awareness that that within football there's a greater emphasis on on data and numbers that amongst the viewing public probably inspired, as Hugh says, by what you see during during American sport and certainly inspired by what producers of sports programming in Europe will see when they look at American sport TV production, that there is a, there's a belief that you need the numbers to kind of give all of the information. You need to provide as much information as possible. Chinch always talks about how he thinks in sort of five, 10 years time, we will see a lot more data on our screens during a football game, that there will be an expectation that, you will have a kind of constant, almost like a second stream, constant stream of information about the game coming to you. And I think the broadcasters are trying to meet that demand. But the main thing is I think there is an, un an understanding or at least a belief that to a lot of fans, you need the measurable bits to be presented to you. And I think that's where that's led as much by the rise of data and, and analytics within football as it is by the need to have things you can argue about on social media and proof for your point. Well, Moussa Diaby's run the quickest today, so so he must have played well. But it's also things like fantasy that have, have trained our brains to, to expect, trained our brains not just to be used to numbers, but to believe that football is a sport solely defined by an individual player's output. Yeah, I, you can imagine with the way that technology is going, that as a, as a viewer of football on television, you will have the option to have some kind of split screen or some a ticker or an alternative view in which you can be having like like the matrix the data is just coming down the screen at you the whole time but that as the broadcaster you need to be finding a way to to incorporate that information in the right way rather than just to be dropping it in willy-nilly use it to enhance your coverage of course but don't 
use it just because you have it available because i think you've got to try and meet the the demand and the desire of every aspect of the audience and there are those the fantasy football players who will really appreciate the data and you absolutely have to make that available to them but there are the the lovers of the game from a more traditional standpoint who who want the expertise of those who are broadcasting the match to make sure that they're utilizing all the all the facets available to them without it without it becoming all consuming about about the data because that is only as as we've used with 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 some of the examples so far the the statistics can only tell you so much well yeah and if you you, to go back to the start some of the players we talked about and Xavi is probably the best example of this that that there is a danger with the rise of of the datafication of football that you lose an appreciation for the people who actually make the game worth watching, who whose action does not doesn't necessarily contribute to any kind of measurable impact, but who or or whose statistics maybe are not the most eye catching. You know, Xavi getting a ninety seven pass completion rate when most of them to the eye appear to be sideways and you know short and slow, and they're not kind of going. You know, they're not brilliant through balls into the box to set players clear. That that you lose a little bit of the appreciation of the art of football. I think that's what's really important. And that's, that's where the conversation, where this whole thing came from, because talking about Tiago as, as someone who plays football as an art rather than, in, rather than an industry. And I don't know quite how that, is, how that survives in an, in an era when increasingly anything that can't be measurable is kind of dismissed as being woolly. And, but that's where I do turn to America and say that they do, I think, have a pretty good balance. They are able to both statistically back up a lot of things and, and with this new kind of advanced level weighted statistics as well, tell that extra story for those who are willing to hear it and, and hopefully don't cloud the mind of others. But also they are able to promote the artistry of those players. There, you know, just we, we had the Super Bowl on Sunday. Patrick Mahomes didn't have a very good statistical day, but there's still a picture of him throwing a sidearm pass whilst almost being prone on the floor just six inches above it so that it's a legal pass. I mean, that that is still a moment of great artistry. Yes, it was an incomplete pass, but there is a person who is capable of doing this that can still be promoted in a game where statistically he had one of the worst of his career. So that I think that there is a there is an element to those who are against the the encroachment, if you like, of statistics on our game. To, to suggest that there will be that retention of the artistry and the promotion of that artistry. While at the same time, there may well be in the future some sort of retroactive, retroactively fitted statistic that might work to enhance the artistry in terms of data as well. But, um, but yeah, whilst always retaining that element of, of understanding and appreciating what a non-data proved yeah. point can sometimes be. There is there is one statistic that isn't kind of in common usage yet here, but I think it's quite popular in the Bundesliga, which is called packing, um, which which I've written about a little while ago, and Rafi Honestein wrote about. Yes, we spoke about it on the uh, on the XG uh, yeah. episode of the podcast. And packing is basically a measure of of how many players, an individual player's action actions take out of the game, which is which if you think about it, is actually quite an important statistic that whether you're dribbling or or crossing or passing whatever you're doing the aim of football to an extent is to take players out of the game now my guess is that someone like Xavi would do very well on a packing measure he'd he'd pack excellently because he would be an excellent packer um back to NFL again because his I was thinking about house moves um the, (laughs) the 
Xavi would be an excellent packer. He'd do everything very neatly. All the boxes would be very small and they'd probably be, you know, they'd, all the plates would be together. It'd be excellent. Um, here's, Xavi, here's two suitcases. Get it into that smaller suitcase. Everything, exactly. all in the he'd same do it, He'd do it brilliantly. He'd do a great job. I'm surprised he's, not, he's gone into coaching and not removals. Xavi oh. and Son domestic logistics though, <laughs> would be underwhelming when they turned up on the front door as you were uh, imagining lots of uh, burly gentlemen in short sleeves and it was lots of neat, neat, tidy, diminutive chaps to move your stuff. Yeah, you don't want Xavi and Iniesta turning up to, to, to cart stuff down your stairs, do you? It'd be awful. You so, definitely, if, if there was a piano on the first floor, it's oh, staying there. Who's got a piano on their first floor? Stephen, come on. What life are you living? The, but I, so I wonder whether something like that, I don't know whether packing would be the perfect measure, but something like that might be a better way of appreciating in numbers the genius and the artistry of the players who do not score lots of goals or create lots of, create lots of goals directly, but, but are in fact kind of in charge of the game. As broadcasters, we perhaps have a responsibility to make sure that we... We, we control this situation and, you know, appreciate that not, not all sports are the same in terms of, of whether or not statistics is, is a critical part or, or how critical a part to the coverage it is. And, and maybe we'll see a, a, a revolution in terms of the way that, that football is covered. And, and will we start being able to incorporate in terms of what we see in the studio or, or what we see in the coverage, the, the different areas of expertise that people are able to provide being brought together so that they can each enhance the coverage in in their own individual way because I think we see a lot um, at the moment that that maybe people are having to diversify a little bit from their areas of expertise and for example I've seen people who are really good at the statistics also doing tactical pieces which seems a bit strange to me because just because you understand the statistics of the game doesn't necessarily mean that you understand how that, that should be incorporated into the tactical elements. But if you were able to bring those two individuals together to use the information, then then you would be able to pass that on to the audience in, in that way. And, and, and I think that's that could be a really important direction of, of innovation for, for football coverage. That's a problem within the media generally, that there is a, a sense in which tactics and statistics are conflated as as all coming under the kind of banner headline of yeah. nerdism yeah and therefore if you if you're nerdy to get one nerdy enough to yes. get one of them you'll be nerdy enough to get the yeah. other there is an assumption that that they are two sides of the same coin whereas in fact if you actually look on social media there's there's a bit there is a, a reasonably large schism between people who who focus on on data and people who focus on tactics as the primary kind of explanatory force behind football i i obviously think about who wants it more <laughs> it's Ma all about desire another previous part <laughs> match of the day's use of xg is a, is a good example of of how smartly these things can be used because they they often drop the xg statistics in over the the post-match interviews af after the match highlights and and occasionally it's done in a really neat way in which you might have a, a manager saying we completely outplayed them today and we were very unlucky to lose just as the xg statistics are dropped <laughs> on the screen beneath them disproving that point and, and that, the but, day subtweeting a manager <laughs> yeah but i i, I think that is a it, that that is a really elegant way of doing it and it and is possibly something that can be expanded upon yeah it is time for never mind jack and Ori, what a soccer story normally this is when andy tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all that up behavior and libel where the details are moved but owing to chinch's continuing enforced absence uh, we have another one sent in by a listener. Uh, last week's was excellent. So let's see what Gregor Muir 
can provide us with. Hello, chap, says Gregor. I greatly enjoy your SPM efforts and have listened for a long time. I often make the SPM 11s in my head without ever writing in, but have been prompted to finally get in touch by your most recent episode. The Jack and Ori soccer story relayed at the end of SPM 216 from your listener, John, encountering actual footballers during a holiday kick around reminded me of an inverse version of this classic tale that I uh, bring to you from my dad. As a university student in the 70s, he spent a year abroad in Germany. Among the other, no doubt, unbroadcastable mischief he got up to was being drawn into a semi-competitive village football match against the next town over, drafted in by one of his new Teutonic university chums. Being young and fit and not totally inept at football, he happily accepted the offer to take part. His German was decent enough, but insufficient in the grammar of football to fully explain his experience and connections to the game. He's Scottish, from Ayrshire, and is a Kilmarnock fan. Apparently, Kilmarnock means very little to your average German townsperson, so in a bit to communicate his footballing stock and help people understand where he was from, he mentioned Rangers too, which seemed to spark some recognition at least, and a couple of nods and smiles. Everyone drifted off to get ready for the big game. Shortly before kickoff, the rumour which had been doing the rounds among the locals finally made its way back to my dad. He was apparently a Rangers player on holiday who had been drafted in as a ringer to play in this village game. Everyone was now very excited to see what this professional could do. The opposing team had also been made aware of this supposed superstar in their midst and so designated their own best player to man mark my dad throughout the match, trailing endlessly after him as he trotted about negating his limited threat while also entirely wasting any of their own opportunities to utilize a decent player. My dad's village won by a couple of goals in the end, including his own late intervention, where he had managed to go herring after a long diagonal, losing his now knackered marker easily, bring it out of the air with a velvet touch and spank a volley into the far corner. Now everyone thought he had just not been trying for 80 minutes and was going easy on them, rather than that he'd just scored the best goal of his entire life and would never replicate it again. I hope there are a few Germans out there now in their 60s or 70s who fondly reminisce about the day that they played against a Rangers midfielder and perhaps even his man marker who proudly recalls how he kept him quiet for almost the whole match. For your international listeners, especially those in Germany, I hope telling the story will not spoil those memories. I'm sure the time that they played in a match against a Rangers player, it was definitely real. Keep up the good work. That's uh, from Gregor. And keep your correspondence coming to seppiesmenu at gmail.com. If you have any soccer stories, that's the email address. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Does, does anybody else maybe think that Gregor's dad has amended the ending of that story just a little bit? <laughs> I trotted around, I trotted around, then I plucked it out of the air and spanked it into the top corner. That's, yeah, there's an element where you wonder whether maybe, you know, memory's a, a, a fluid, you know, fragile thing. Maybe maybe he, he just has confused how he wanted it to end with how it actually ended. That seems, seems a little bit too good to be true. Rory, if it's made content for us, long <laughs> may Gregor embellish it, the story of his youth. Gregor, if anything, is the victim here. <laughs> it's his dad who is the, and I don't want to use this word lightly, Bosh. congenital liar. Congenital <laughs> <laughs> liar. I, the, the, the way that um, some of the, clearly all of our correspondents over email write beautifully, but sometimes you have the odd phrase that might suggest that what Rory is saying. Like, for example, would Gregor, as much as he has written this in, completely eloquently and beautifully would he talk about 
plucking out the the, the, the long diagonal with a velvet touch? Mm, mm. Or would it be something that his father has cultivated over generation and generation of telling this story, legend passed down to his son by using the word velvet? But that, that happens to all of us, doesn't it? So all the dolls that we straw in, in memory over the years become infinitely better. So perhaps what's, what's happened is that the ball, he's, he's head after the long ball, that's fine, believe that. The marker's knackered, believe that he sort of vaguely touched the ball and it's kind of bounced off his shin. And then he's, he swiped at it, aiming for the bottom right, it's gone top left. And that has become, well, obviously I plucked it down with a velvet touch and then, then swept a volley home. It, that, you know, memory plays tricks on us. The, the, the best goal I've ever scored went into the opposite corner of the one to which I was aiming. I think the best goal that Chinch would say he's ever scored went into the opposite goal to which he was aiming. Uh, the best goal I've ever scored was definitely meant for the top corner.